everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm very pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. April is National Poetry Month. And today I'm continuing my conversation with Philip Rosenberg about the connections between mythology and poetry. This is part two in a four-part series on the topic of poetry and myth, and I think you're really going to enjoy today's program and what I've got coming up for you. Today we want to start by expanding on a couple of things that were said in part one of this conversation which is called How to Read a Poem, if you want to go and find that in the archives. In that program, we said that mythology and poetry are not exactly the same thing because myth is a communal expression that tells our story. And poetry is a personal expression that tells my story. This distinction is significant, but it raises the question, is sharing my story the sole purpose or mission of poetry? Now, correct me, Philip, I'm counting on you to jump in at any point, but I think we've decided that the personal versus the communal in that comparison uh, makes sense. But poetry isn't necessarily about my story so much as it's about the individual exploration of the spectrum of experience. That's correct. A a poet writes in order to do several things. Not all at once, necessarily. (laughs) But one thing that a poet does is explore their relationship to, to other people and to nature. Another thing that a poet does when they write is they, they can express deeply held feelings. They can describe an experience or they can just share their observations in a poetic manner. So maybe it's it's really more accurate to say that it's an individual expression and to just kind of drop out that my story part. I mean, all of these things are components of what we think of as our personal story, but that seemed a little bit too limiting. I think so. And I think there's something ineffable mm-hmm. about poetry, something that a, a poet experiences that needs to be spoken in poetic language okay. and, and can't be really properly expressed in another way. Well, so that kind of gets us then to the other loose end that we sort of wanted to tie up here and also launch us into today's topic, which is what are the differences and similarities between mythology and poetry. And that loose end has to do with the difference between discursive and poetic writing. In last week's conversation about the poetic, you said it causes you to make leaps in your thinking. And you were contrasting that with the discursive. Can you elaborate on on that difference just a little bit more for us today? Discursive writing, which is what you might read in a magazine or even in a newspaper uh, or might be in an essay, is generally writing that 
proceeds by reasoning or by argument rather than by intuition. And I would say poetic writing, writing in the forms of poetry, proceeds more by intuition than by reasoning or argument. So that's, we're not going to find a lot of poetry in a legal brief? Probably not. One of the ways that poetry does what poetry does is to approach a subject or a topic from an angle. And that is to say, it doesn't speak to the topic directly. It speaks to the topic indirectly. Sometimes if you look up at the sky and you try to look at, say, the Pleiades, if you're familiar with that constellation, it's very, very difficult to see when you look directly at it. But you find that if you turn your head away just a little bit and you look at the Pleiades out of the corner of your eye, for some reason I can't explain, it becomes clarified Mm -hmm. and you can see it better. And it's a, a similar thing with poetry. The way Emily Dickinson talked about this phenomenon was to say that you write about things, but you write about them slant. Oh, I like that. This part of this conversation is reminding me of Medusa. And I have Medusa on the brain just a little bit since we just did the Musing on Medusa art show. And the Medusa, a spoken word event at the Listening Lounge in March. This reminds me of Medusa because I've come to think of her as a mythical embodiment of the mystery, of transformation. And then I think that's one way to think about this being or power or force that's in a dark cave on the edge of the known world who can turn you from something living to stone. And the connection between what you were just saying about the poetic and Dickinson's slant and Medusa is that she was something that you couldn't look at directly. Ah, yes, that's correct. So I'm kind of wondering if there's a possibility for Medusa to function as a poetic muse of some sort. Well, that's an interesting idea. You could certainly keep Medusa in your room with you when you're writing poetry and have her remind you not to be looking directly at whatever it is, but to look at it slant, to look at it out of the corner of your eye, to to approach it indirectly. And in doing that, find things there that would not otherwise be clear to you. So we've clarified a little bit that one difference between poetry and mythology is the communal versus the individual nature of the expression. And we've refined a little bit more what we mean by poetic versus discursive writing. I want to move now to a little bit more direct comparison between mythology and poetry. And there are, of course, a lot of different ways that you can slice this. But the simple scheme that I've come up with is to look at three primary components of both a myth in the way that we typically think of of mythology, and a poem. And those components are topic, form, and language. So what is it about? How is it constructed? 
and then what is the function or use of language in it. Because we've already established that language is an important part of poetic and mythological expression. Because of, for one thing, because of the slant-wise aspect of it. So what I'm proposing is that we take a couple of examples to illustrate topic, form, and language for mythology and for poetry. And predictably, I'm working the mythology side. And I want to use Anana, Queen of Heaven and Earth, as my example for a myth. This is an ancient Sumerian myth of the great goddess that was originally a poem and has been translated, retaining its poetic form through a collaboration between Diane Wolkstein, who was a storyteller, and Samuel Noah Kramer, who is one of the better known scholars of Sumerian civilization. Their work together is really beautiful if you want to check it out yourself. So, first of all, on topic about mythology, is that it's primarily about cosmic and social order about the gods, about the sacred, about origins and endings. And, you know, if you turn to Anana, Queen of Heaven and Earth, and you start with her very first uh, story or hymn or poem, those words are all kind of interchangeable here, you find the Hulupa tree. And it starts in the very first days. In the very first days. In the very first nights. In the very first nights, in the first years, in the very first years, in the very first days when everything needed was brought into being, and the very first days when everything needed was properly nourished. And it goes on from there to describe the context for Anana's arrival, which is the time when heaven had moved away from earth. And so we see right here that this is about origins and order. And because I have to cover this rather quickly, I will tell you that the very first set of, of poems about Anana have to do with how order is created first in the creation and establishment of the earthly realm. And then this next story, which I just love, is the story of Anana going and drinking with the big high god um, Anli and getting him drunk and therefore then getting from him all of the various tools to create social order and convention. And that's how Anana then becomes the great goddess. So here's an example that I think is works across mythologies about a story about cosmic and social order. And that kind of gets me to the second thing about form. Mythology is a narrative. Mythology is a story. We have a story here that's beginning like a lot of fairy tales. Once upon a time, here we have in the first days, and it's going to go on across pages and pages and pages and pages to basically describe the powers and career and significance of this goddess, Anana. So then the last component, and I think it's easiest if I just do this all for the mythology and then we'll turn to Philip's example with the poetry. The last component, language. 
Now, mythology is notable for its use of metaphor and symbolic language. In this particular poem here, when Anana gets the halupa tree, which was a tree that was planted by the banks of the Euphrates, when she gets that tree and she replants it in her garden and tends it until it grows large enough for her to cut it down and have a bed and a throne made, we are talking about a tree, but we're obviously also talking about something else. We're talking about a symbol for the unity between heaven and earth, above and below, which is Anana herself, goddess of heaven and earth, and the material for the two institutions or sources of her power, the bed and the throne. She is the sexual, generative, fertile, feminine, and she's also an ordering principle. We need to read metaphorically and symbolically, and yet every word in this poem is not a metaphor. And it's not, uh, to borrow Philip's word for poem, it's not a compressed form. The language is much looser, and that's all I'm going to say on about this because we have to acknowledge here that I'm reading an English translation of something that was already that was originally written in Sumerian. So, Philip, I'm going to turn it over to you now on the poetry end of it. So, first, generally, the relationship between poetry and topic, poetry and form, poetry and language, and then I think you have an example to share with us to help illustrate that. Sure. On topic, while myths are about the big questions, origins, life and death, poetry really can take anything as a topic. Uh, As far as form, uh, whereas myth is a narrative, poetry is more of a compressed form in the sense that the words can be used to mean more than one thing and they're often not even in complete sentences. Also, the difference between uh, myth and poetry is that poetry has certain structures and forms that are particular to poetry, which is not true of mythology. So in addition to being compressed, a poem follows specific rules about that govern its structure. It does. It has, there are certain forms, there are sonnets, there are villanelles, there are limericks. These are the various forms of, of poetry, and they, not always, but at least in the past, utilized specific meters and rhyme patterns. Meter refers to the rhythm of the poem, the stressed and the unstressed syllables and how those are arranged and put together. There are iams, there's dactyls, trochees, these are all different metrical feet. And in certain forms, you have a certain number of those metrical feet. And then rhyming, we know what words are that rhyme, but in a poem, the rhymes have to show up in a certain pattern. In a certain pattern, that's correct. So as far as form goes, mythology is a narrative Poetry is a compressed form, as you say, not necessarily complete sentences, maybe layers of meaning, in particular words or phrases, to really pack a lot in. And then also, very importantly, poetry follows a form. 
two main components of that being meter and rhyme. As far as language, poetry intentionally manipulates the meanings and uses of words in order to express an idea and especially to create an image. The language itself sometimes is examined in poetry, which is something that you don't generally find in myth. So a poem can, is, can sometimes be as much about the use of the words in the poetic structure. Correct. So I've got a, a couple of examples here to illustrate the points that we're making. First of all, with regards to topic, and that myths are about the big questions, and that poetry can take anything as a topic, I thought we would share The Red Wheelbarrow by William Carlos Williams. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. That's the whole poem. And obviously it is a compressed form. It's only 16 (laughs) words. It's not about the big questions, life and death, beginnings and endings. It's an observation. And what he's observing here is a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. And he's creating an image, which is what poems do. He's also observing where he says so much depends upon this red wheelbarrow. He's also observing that we have to observe, that sometimes we have to get out of our own heads, out of our own psychologies, and just look at what is around us in detail and really be attentive to it and talk about those things. And that's really what he's doing here in this poem. This is a a place where it's useful to know a little bit about the poet and the steps that you gave us and how to read a poem, the first part of this conversation that we had. One thing that you said was that it can be helpful to know a little bit about the poet and the time or place of the writing of the poem. And this poem, which is which is one of Williams's more famous ones, really expresses his central uh, philosophy about life and poetry, doesn't it? I mean, I'm trying to remember, what was the famous maxim that's associated with him? Right. He had a famous saying where he said, no ideas, but in things. So he felt it was really important to be rooted in the material world. And he was responding in his poetry... To with he was responding with this particular poem to what had come before him where people were not doing that. I think that's an important point. So he is writing about something very ordinary in a way, but he is making a profound philosophical point about it. When we say that a poem can be on any topic, we aren't necessarily saying that it's mundane. I mean, there is something about the urge to express something poetically that seems like it involves itself automatically with profound philosophical issues of some sort. But that's a great example of something that's not about the God, the chicken God of heaven and earth. (laughs) Um, And compressed form, yeah, you can't get a lot more compressed than that. That's right. Uh, One thing that you'll notice about this poem is that it doesn't rhyme. Mm -hmm. 
And we had said earlier, I believe, that two of the things that differentiate poetry from discursive writing and from, and from mythology is that it rhymes, it has a rhyme scheme, and that it has a metrical pattern. So just a couple of words about that. What makes this poetry if it doesn't rhyme and it doesn't have a particular metrical pattern? Well, it does in fact have a metrical pattern. And if you, uh, if you were to look this up online and look at it visually, you would see that it's, these 16 words are divided into four stanzas. And the second, each one is two lines. So much depends is the first line. Upon is the second line. A red wheel is the third line and barrow is the fourth line. And what's happening is upon barrow, water, and chickens are all alternating with so much depends, a red wheel, glazed with rain, beside the white. So there's this pattern that he has developed for this particular poem that creates a structure. And this is what is called free verse. And really good free verse does that. It's not without form. It's that the form matches the structure and the subject of the poem itself. And the poet, because he or she is not using traditional forms and rhyme, has to create a form in which the poem can reside. As far as rhyme, there is no rhyme in this poem. But there is a metrical pattern and there is a form that he has created. So it is poetry. The last thing we were talking about, we have talked about topic, form, and language. With regard to language, I want to give you just a couple of examples of where poets use language and play with language as an important part of their work. The first is a poem called For a Lamb, by Richard Eberhardt. I'm not going to read the whole poem, but I will tell you the poem is about him coming upon a dead lamb in the grass. And at the end of the poem, he asks the question, where's the lamb whose tender plaint said all for the mute breezes? Say he's in the wind somewhere. Say there's a lamb in the daisies. Well, what you find out when you look at this poem closely is that the word breezes used to be a word that originally meant spirits. So he's looking at this dead lamb and he's calling into play this word breezes because of its meaning as spirit. Another example is from a poem called Design by Robert Frost where he comes upon a spider who is eating a dead moth. The spider is white, the moth is white, and the flower upon which the spider is perched is also white. It's called a heel-all, which is normally a blue flower found along the roadside, but in this case he's come across one that is white. And he says at the end of the poem, What brought that kindred spider to that height? Then stared the white moth thither in the night. What but design of darkness to appall, if design govern in a thing so small? Well, what you find out is, when you look into this more closely, that appall, in addition to mean horrifying, 
which this is certainly a horrifying scene, also means to drain of color or to make white. So there's another example of compressed language or of play with language, using words in a way that is unusual and that has more than one meaning. It's occurring to me that we might want to add to the list of how to read a poem, kind of introductory steps, looking up some of the words that are in the poem, including words that you think that you know the meaning of, because it's possible that the poet has found additional layers yes. that would enhance your sense of the poem's meaning. There are lots of words you can use to convey something. And one of the things that makes a really great poet is how particular they are about the selection of the particular word that they use in the poem. And I would say, especially the words that you think you know what they mean, sometimes it's good to look at at the dictionary meaning and at the etymology of the word because you may find that there is something at play beneath the surface that's not immediately apparent. So what we've discovered in, in this very simple comparison here between poetry and mythology in terms of topic, form, and language is that there are quite a few differences. But that still leads or raises the question of why so many ancient myths were written as poems. I've been thinking about this a little bit. One of the really obvious things, if you think about ancient mythologies being part of oral traditions, is that poems may have been easier to memorize. But I think there's more to it than that. I mean, another thing that I thought of is that the aesthetic quality of a poem, because of its attention to language and structure, is something that has been revered. And so it makes sense to me that something that would be considered to be a revered or special type of expression would be used to convey messages that were also very, very, very important, like, for example, how the world began. If you go back to your original example of the story of Inanna, which was written in poetic form, you might go back to that and read just the beginning of it again. In the first days... In the very first days, in the first nights, in the very first nights, in the first years, in the very first years. So what you've got is you have a lot of repetition, which is another thing that you find in poetry often. You can probably remember, I can't recall what it is, but I think there were certain things like that in the Odyssey as well, weren't there? Things that kept mm -hmm. coming back. Mm -hmm. Can you remember? Rosy Fingered Dawn. Rosy Fingered Dawn, there was one. So right. one of the things about poetry that was useful, I think, for the mythologies was the use of repetition. Picking up on that, another reason that I think there's a close relationship between mythology and poetry, at least in the ancient classical forms, is the rhythm was created through the attention in poetry to structure, which connects us to the body, and that's the part of the point you were making about reading poetry aloud, and then also to meditative states. Well, the rhythm is important also because if you've got a story or you've got a poem that has some rhythm to it, 
you can dance to it. Mm-hmm. There's a way, f- that's a way for the story to come into the body. The last thing that I came up with in answer to this question of why so many ancient myths were written as poems is that, that myths are intimately connected to images and this is something that it shares with poetry. In conclusion, I mean, it seems to me that myth and poetry spring from that same impulse or need to express something that can't be expressed any other way. It has to be metaphorical. It has to be image-based. And the realm of personal expression has expanded over time to the point where now an individual can use poetry to talk about pretty much anything that has happened to him or her. But... Poetry is always an attempt to get beyond the superficial and the trivial and the obvious. There's a way in which I think that the best poems don't really start with an idea that you want to talk about. The best poems actually start with an image that you have to then find a way to express in words. Right, so the frost poem of the white spider with the white moth on the white flower and then the connection to the to the word appalled. Those are all sort of, of a piece. Or the red wheelbarrow. A poet has an experience that shows up as an image and then what do you do with that? You have to express it in words. Words are your tools to express that image. Well, thank you, Philip, for having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Before I close, I want to mention again the Plein Air Poetry Workshop in the National Park on Saturday, April 26th. That is being hosted by the Desert Institute. So if you go to their website, www.joshuatree.org, you can get further details if you are interested in attending that workshop. I'd like to remind you that Radio Free Joshua Tree and Myth in the Mojave are made possible by generous donations from Mojave Wi-Fi, Joshua Treats Ice Cream, Pappy and Harriet's, Peter Spur Realty, and listeners like you. Please support this unique community-based station by clicking on the Donate button on our website at www.rfjt.org. Tune in next week, and in the meantime... Happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life.